Welcome to Evangel Church. Our mission is to bring people into a life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ. For more information, visit us at evangelchurch.com. Thank you so much to Pastor Rick and the worship team. Thank you guys very, very much. Good morning. I'm Pastor Ron, and it's just a pleasure to be here with you this morning. I want to piggyback on something that Pastor Chris had said. Sixty of our men are at Blue Mountain now. They're in lunch as we speak. We'll be returning sometime this afternoon or this evening, and I'm believing God that the glory of God will return with them. We had some amazing times Friday night just worshiping God and sensing the presence of the Lord. And throughout the course of yesterday, I had to come back early, but I got the reports that even last night there was just a powerful stirring of the Holy Spirit. And our prayer had been that as we went away that God would not just stir us for a moment, but that something from the work of God would go deeply into our hearts, changing us Godward forever. And that's what we're praying for. So I'm going to invite you to join me in praying to that same end, that as the guys come back, that touch of God will be upon them and revolutionizing their lives and then touching our hearts, our homes, our families, our church, and our community to the glory of God. Amen? Amen. Amen. I want to thank Pastor Chris for inviting me to share in the series that we're considering now. When he asked me if there was any particular part of this Ephesians paragraph that I wanted to address, there was one verse that stuck out in very bold relief. So I asked him if that was the one I could hit and We'll be sharing with you this morning Ephesians 6, 16. As I began to read that passage over and over, I thought, God, there's something there that I have not yet seen. This idea of the fiery darts of the enemy and the shield of faith, God, what is it you want to show us this morning? So I pray this morning that God will help us to rightly divide the word. He'll help us to open it up that we may see some gold that God has tucked away in that passage for the church of the first century, the church in Ephesus, and for the church in Scotch Plains, New Jersey today. Amen. That having been said, would you turn with me in your Bible to so Ephesians chapter 6, and I want to read verses 10 through 16. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For we struggle, or our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against their authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. And verse 16, in addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Let me read that verse once again. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. The book of Ephesians is really not a very long one of Paul's 13 epistles. It's only six chapters. But it's a very, very important book tucked away in the canon of the New Testament. It was rather brief, yet it was very passionate and this book was sent to a young church that was strategically placed in the region of Ephesus. A church right in the heart of the center of where the gospel needed to be preached. It was a church with whom Paul had spent a significant period of time. Many times he'd go into a region and be there for a week or two or maybe a month. But he was in Ephesus much, much longer, laying the foundation for a church that would be pivotal in that era of history. 
It was also a church for whom the apostle felt a real immeasurable affection. There was a real bond. And if we don't believe it, look at the book of Acts chapter 12 or earlier in Acts. And the scripture tells us that, that Paul was leaving. And the elders of the church fell upon his neck and they wept because they did not want to see him go. There was a real bond of affection and tenderness and love and faith between the apostle Paul and the church in Ephesus. Before his closing remarks, Paul ends the epistle with critical words of instruction, words about the nature of their spiritual warfare and the pathway to victory. It's one thing for us to talk about spiritual warfare, and all of us are aware that we're embroiled in it from time to time, perhaps more often than we want to be. One thing to talk about spiritual warfare, but entirely a different thing to help us to understand that over and against that there is victory that is ours in Jesus Christ. And when Paul began to talk to the church in Ephesus, as he started to wrap up this brief epistle, he did tell them about this warfare. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but he said in the final analysis, if you will guard yourself and, war and, and garm yourself, garment yourself as God would have you, then the end of it all is that we win in Jesus Christ. Glory to God. There is victory in Jesus. He begins his final challenge with the command to be strong, accompanied by the confidence to know that the church cannot and will never be responsible for trying to win this war by ourselves and our own strength and by our own abilities. He begins the paragraph by talking about God's power, and all of us love to talk about the power of God. Amen? He begins the paragraph talking about God's power. But he ends and develops the paragraph telling us how you and I can access the same. We read in the scriptures about the power of God all the time. The Bible tells us in the book of Acts, you shall receive power when the Holy Ghost comes upon you. You shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. We read it, but it's good for us to understand, God, how do I tap into that power? How do I access the power of Almighty God? And I will tell you, one of the things that the Apostle Paul did in the church of Ephesus, he did not leave them hanging. He made it very clear to them how they could walk in power, how they could walk in victory against the onslaughts of the adversary. Luke chapter 22, verses 31 and 32 takes us to an occasion when Jesus was talking with Simon Peter. And he said to Simon, 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 Satan has desired to sift you, in the plural, you all, like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. Now, I don't know if I was in Simon's place immediately. I would have felt that that was sufficient. I think if the Lord said, Ron, Ron, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you. I think my thought would have been, God, can you just kind of take him out this afternoon? If he said, Ron, Satan has desired to sift you, but I'm going to kill him at 2 o'clock, so we're good. I would love to have heard something like that. But as I study the word of God, I realize that what Jesus said was perhaps the most profound thing that he could have presented to Simon Peter. He said, Simon, I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. Because the message of Jesus Christ, the lesson of Jesus that day, was that if our faith remains intact, there is nothing to which we cannot press, and there is nothing over which we cannot overcome as children of Almighty God. And I have to wonder if Jesus is praying the same thing today. The Bible says that he ever lives to make intercession for us. And I just have to wonder. If as surely as he felt it was important to pray for Simon's faith to stay in place, is it that Jesus Christ, part of his prayer around the throne this morning, is that he's praying for you and myself that our faith fail not? Because again, if our faith is strong in God, there is nothing which you cannot overcome. Glory to God. That's the word of the Lord. 
Ephesians chapter 6, verse 16 again says, In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the enemy. Allow me, if you would, for a few moments this morning from the text to share with you three aspects of faith that are revealed to us by the lesson of the shield. I want to tell you briefly about the substance of faith, the source of faith, and the success of faith. Let me begin with the substance of faith. When it comes to the issue of faith, much has been said by many, many people. I wonder sometimes if you lined up ten of us and asked us to define faith, we'd probably have at least four or five different answers that would come. Much has been said by communities, both secular and sacred, trying to define the issue of faith. So I want to present to you this morning, first of all, what faith is not. And I turn my attention, first of all, to words that come from the secular and skeptical community as they try to define the Christian perspective on faith. Mark Twain said this, he defined faith as believing what you know ain't true. Sam Harris said, faith is the license religious people give themselves to keep believing when reason fails. Bill Maher, theologian of the 21st century, said faith means making a virtue out of not thinking. Richard Dawkins said the whole point of religious faith is strength, its strength and its chief glory is that it does not depend on rational justification. The reason or the rest of us are expected then to defend our prejudices. And a man named John Loftus said this. He said, faith is an attitude or feeling whereby someone attributes a higher degree of probability to the evidence than what the evidence calls for. That's interesting to hear the words of the skeptics. It is equally interesting to hear the perspective of many who find themselves in the ranks of the believers. Let me give you but a few. Someone illustrated faith a few years ago by saying that faith is like finding a very large tree, climbing up the tree. You've taken a saw with you, you begin to hack off the limb, and you watch the tree fall. And that makes you a dynamic preaching illustration, but it also is pretty dumb. I have a friend of mine who defined faith. She said this, she said, I know that I'm operating in faith when I can figure out ahead of time what God is about to do. And then one author said this, he said, the steps of faith fall on the seeming void and find the rock beneath. That is indeed poetic, but what does it give us? The Bible makes some very bold statements itself about this thing called faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for. It is the evidence of things not seen. The NIV puts it this way. Now faith is the confidence in what we hope for and the assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 says that without faith it is impossible to please God. But he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Romans chapter 5 verses 1 and 2. Therefore since we have been justified through faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into his grace in which we now stand. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, verses 22 and 23. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go and throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. And then Galatians, chapter 3, verse 11 the Apostle Paul simply said this. He said, the righteous or the just 
shall live by faith. It becomes obvious to us as we look at the words of Scripture that this issue of faith is critical and integral to the life of every single one of us who call ourselves a born-again believer. So it would serve us well then not to be swayed by the biblical literacy of the skeptics or to be swayed by the flowery words and the colorful illustrations and the creative imagination of those who call themselves believers. Faith is not what you and I define it out of our emotion, out of our experience. The Bible is very concrete when it talks about this issue of faith. Let me share with you what the Word has to say. According to the Scriptures, the Bible tells us that faith means literally to persuade or to be persuaded. It means a conviction, a belief in the veracity of whatever the object of your faith or whomever the object of your faith happens to be. Faith is trust. Faith is confidence. Faith is assurance. And if those are the things that really are the bedrock of faith, then it behooves us as believers to understand what this faith is and then how in the world we can access it through the word of Almighty God. Confident persuasion. This confident persuasion, which is the definition of faith, it is not the outcome of our imagination. It is not the outcome of our emotion. It is not a matter of peer pressure or anything else like that. It is based entirely on fact. There are some who feel I'm operating in faith when when I feel this thing. Glory to God. Or when I got the shakes and the quivers and I know I'm moving in faith. Faith is much deeper than your emotions and mine. It's it's deeper than our imagined, our our own definitions. Faith, the Bible says, is substance. And it is based upon empirical fact, such as the reality of the resurrection. The resurrection is not a myth. It's not a fable. It's not a story. It is fact, and we can put our faith in it. The Bible says that if he is not resurrected, our faith is in vain, and we are lost and without hope. Glory to God. But I'm telling you this morning, he is alive forevermore. Glory to God. He visited us in the first service, and he showed up in this one because he is very, very much alive. Your faith and my faith, our persuasion, is based on fact. Because of that, faith and fact becomes the basis of our realistic hope. When I hope in God, I'm not hoping in some fable. My hope in God is based on the facts that God has given. And I have every right as a child of God to trust in those things that God has said. Paul told the Corinthians, he said, For we live by faith and not by sight. Sometimes as believers we have kind of mangled that. The idea of living by faith, we define it sometimes in our actions as being rather haphazard. What are your plans for the future? I don't know. I'm just living by faith, not by sight. Honey, are we ever going to get engaged? I don't know, baby. We're just living by faith and not by sight. (laughs) Do we want to have children? We've been married 48 years. I don't know. We're living by faith and not by sight. No wonder people mock us from time to time because sometimes the way we portray this thing called faith in Christianity engenders the ridicule of of others. May I tell you that faith is not something as weak as all that. Nor was it when the apostle said, for we live by faith 
and not by sight. He wasn't talking about us blindly wandering around hoping sooner or later we figure out or hoping that things fall in the right place. He was talking about a simple fact that sometimes what we see in front of us is not the final chapter. It's not the end of the story because when we trust God, we might not see the outcome yet, but we know that God is faithful. Glory to God. Simon Peter understood this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. He said, this inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in this last time. He said, keep trusting God. Salvation is, or heaven is not here yet, but there's a salvation, a completion of salvation that's ready for you. Live by faith now. And one day, as the old song says, faith will become sight. Glory to God. Keep trusting God. We might not see it yet, but it's coming. Glory to God. It's coming. The substance of faith. The substance of faith is based on the flawless reliability of God. Let me say it again. The substance of faith is based on the flawless reliability of God and our confident persuasion that he remains the same yesterday and today and forever. Glory to God. When I wake up in the morning, he's the same. When I got saved 42 years ago, he was the same. If I wake up tomorrow morning on this side of glory, he'll be the same. If Jesus spares my life another decade, you know what? He's going to be the same. 38,000 years into eternity, he'll be the same. And I can rest my life and my faith upon the God who said, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. And by the way, I'll never change. I am the immutable God, I change not. Glory to God. That is the fact. And that's a fact upon which you and I can base our faith. Folks, that's substance. Secondly, the source of faith. The source of faith really is not anything new. The strength of the church, the strength of the community of believers throughout the ages, Old Testament and New Testament, has always been the knowledge of, the dependence upon, and our adherence to the word of Almighty God. There are not a lot of sources that stir our faith. There are, are contemporary things that come that help augment it. But the real source of faith comes from the word of God. Romans chapter 10, verse 17, the King James puts it this way. It says, so then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. The same verse in the NIV says this. Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word of Christ. There is no great mystery. And there is no new contemporary formula to how we find faith and how we grow in faith. There's no new message that God has given to us in the 21st century. The principal source of faith was, is, and will always be the Word of God. Our faith, our understanding of God comes from its source. It comes, the substance of our faith comes from the source, and that is the Word of Almighty God. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. And it becomes a source of all of our understanding of God, all of our hope in God, all of our belief in God. It is the source of your faith and mine. Glory to God. It breaks my heart when I hear of churches where the pulpits are filled with all manner of rhetoric that never comes close to the word of God. Just this weekend, someone was sharing with us. They had visited another church. They visited in an official capacity. And as they were there, they, the 
preacher got up to preach and he said, we're going to turn to the word of God. He said it a second time, we're going to turn to the word of God. He said it three times. 45 minutes later when he was given the benediction, he had never read the word, he never opened the book, never referred to the scriptures. What he had to share, I do not know. I want to tell you this morning that there's only one church on the planet that does that, but I'm committed to telling you the truth, so I can't tell you that. Unfortunately, there are too many gatherings of believers where we talk about the word, but we seldom open it and talk from the word. Statistics tell us that when it comes to believers in our prayer lives, that the average believer prays about three minutes a day, and that the average pastor prays about seven. When it comes to reading the word of God, that the statistics are not much more muscular than that, that there is a dearth of an understanding and an investigation of the word of Almighty God, and then we wonder sometimes why we're weak, why we don't seem to have faith, why we can't seem to see miracles happen, because many times we have forsaken the very source of the faith that God would give us. It's not an indictment, folks. It's just the way it is, but it's not the way it has to be. Amen? Amen. I'll tell you a couple things about this issue of faith and the source of faith. It is fidelity and commitment to the Word of God that launched Joshua's career as a great leader. When Joshua was called to follow in the footsteps of Moses, it was not just the fact that Moses was his mentor that made him a great leader. It was not the fact that he had led several large, small groups, if you would, through the desert that made him a great leader. It was not his lineage, it was not his heritage, it was not his name. It was not his good looks. It was not his personal prowess. It was his fidelity and commitment to the word of Almighty God. When God called him to step into those huge shoes that were left by Moses, God said to him, be strong. Be strong and very courageous. But God knew that Joshua would need more than just strength and personal courage. So he says this to Joshua in the book of Joshua, chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. He said, this book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth. But thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For thou shalt, for thou shalt make, I'm sorry, for then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Have not I commanded thee, be strong and be of, of good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed, for the Lord thy God is with thee, whithersoever thou goest. He began that brief paragraph. By saying to him, this book of the law, this word of God, will not depart from you day or night. It's not a matter of your casual visitation every now and then or a cursory reading when you're in the mood. He said, this book, this word of God, must be part of your life day and night. And something in the heart of Joshua rose up and said yes to God. And he lived his life as a man who was committed to the word of Almighty God. That's what made him a great leader in the nation of Israel. Glory to God. Secondly, it's familiarity, it is familiarity with the Word of God that promotes purity in the life of a believer. Familiarity of the Word of God promotes purity in the life of a believer. Psalm 119, verses 127, 28, and 133 says this. It says, because I love your commands more than gold, more than pure gold, because I consider all your precepts right, I hate every wrong path. Direct my footsteps according to your word sin rule over me. Psalm 119, verses 9 through 11. How can a young man stay on the path of purity? By living according to the word, I seek with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commandments. 
I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I love the King James in this, maybe the majesty or poetry of it. He says, wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his ways? By taking heed thereto according to the word of God. It is our familiarity with the word of God. It's having that word tucked away on the inside. That when I'm tempted to sin and walk for away from God and stray from God's principle, that word rises up on the inside and brings purity to my heart. No wonder the Apostle Paul said, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Glory to God. Thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee. There's not only a fidelity and a commitment to the word. There must be a familiarity with the word of God. Thirdly, it was the following or the obeying of the word of God that further solidified the faith of the early apostles. It was the following or the obeying of the word of God that solidified the faith of the early apostles. There's an account, as you know, in Luke chapter 5. Jesus is at the lake of Gennesaret. Crowds had been coming in and he wanted to speak with them. So he happened to see two boats floating in the water. He thought, I'll go in them and I'll use them as a platform. Some people tell us, some historians tell us that Back in the day when there were no PA systems that they would use water off and their voices would deflect off the water and somehow it was a natural amplification. Perhaps that's why Jesus did it, but he gets in these boats and he addresses the crowd. When he's done addressing the crowd, he happens to look around the boat. He knows he's in the boat of a fisherman named Simon Peter. The only problem was, as Jesus looked around, there were no fish in the boat. Peter had been out all night long fishing and there was nothing to show that he knew what he was doing. So Jesus says to him, Simon... Launch out into the deep. Cast your nets one more time. Now, I wonder if Jesus had said that to us, what would we have said to him? Would we have said something like, you know, preacher, you do your job. and I'll do mine. You're the preacher. I'm the fisherman. I'm kind of tired. Get out of my boat. Hopefully, they wouldn't have said that to him. But what he did say was this. He said, Master, we've been out all night long. And caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, just because you say so, we'll do it. Turned the boat around, went out into the water, dropped the net, and the Bible says they caught so many fish. The net broke. Glory to God. He obeyed what God said. There are times God will speak to us, and he might not make clear what's on the other side of his, of his command. But all we need to know is what is God saying, when is he saying, how is he telling me to do it, and get about doing it. He said, I've been out all night long, but because you said so, I'll go one more time. And when he got out there, he saw the miracle of Almighty God. Glory to God. There's something about obeying and following the word of God that will solidify our faith. Fourthly, it is the foundation of the word of God that protects us from the deception of the enemy. It is the foundation when the word of God is that upon which we stand that protects us then from the deception of the enemy. You know the accounts in both Matthew 4 and Luke 4, so I won't share them all with you. Jesus was in a place of fasting and in a place of testing for some 40 days. While he was there at least three different times, the enemy came to him and tempted the Son of God. Please understand, folks, if the enemy will do that to Jesus, don't we think he's going to try to tempt us? He came and he tried to tempt Jesus Christ, but I love what Jesus did. The Bible says going into that desert and coming out, he was full of the Holy Spirit. 
For the word also says that Jesus, every time the enemy whispered something in his ear, Jesus simply turned back and said, but it is written, glory to God. Somewhere in the word of God, this is what it says. And over and over again, the the weapon that Jesus Christ used to silence the onslaught of the enemy was the word of Almighty God. It was the source of faith in the days of Jesus. It is a source of faith right now. The Bible still says, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God of God. Glory to God. The Word of God. Three aspects of faith. The substance of faith. The source of faith. Lastly and quickly, I want to talk to you about the success of faith. The success of faith. And this is where we talk a little bit about the shield. The shield of faith. Paul said again in Ephesians 6, he said, in addition Or if you're reading some translations, it says, above all. Above all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. I was intrigued again by this passage of scripture. Because I thought, a shield, extinguishing fire, tell me how that works. There's something deeper in that than I understood and I knew that. I was well aware of that. About two months ago, I happened to be flipping through the channels, and I watched a program on the making of shields. And that was what came to mind. These are shields that were used in warfare. And I thought of those, and I thought, somehow I don't think that's exactly what Paul was talking about in this place. But he begins this brief instruction by saying, above all. When he said to him, above all, and that's a good translation of this, it's not necessarily in terms of its importance or its value. It could be translated Overall, because the shield was placed over all the other defense uh, armor that the soldier would have. It was placed above everything else or over everything else. It constitutes protection over every part of the body. And it's the only piece of armor designed to and capable of covering all the other parts. When I've got on the helmet and I've got the sword and I've got the belt and I've got my shoes covered, the only piece of armor that God gave that covers everything else in the mix was the shield. And it's important for us to understand what he's talking about and why he said when it comes to this shield, it is either overall or above all or in keeping with everything else that is there. Very important lesson for us to learn. In the time of the ancients, many, many years ago, Shields were a vital part of the warrior's armor. The shield, in fact, if a soldier was left without a shield, then perhaps more than any other piece of the armor, they felt particularly vulnerable. The shields of that day were interesting in their variety. They were also interesting in their composition. Many of the shields were made of metal. Not all of them. Many were made of metal. And for many of the ones that were made of metal, there were five different layers of metal that were part of the shield. On the two outer surfaces, they were covered with brass. Next to those on the inside, there were layers of tin. And in the middle of that, in the very center of it, there was a layer of gold that was in this shield. And these shields were considered to be formidable weapons of warfare. Let me tell you about a few different types of shields, specific ones. And forgive me if I mispronounce the name. The clippius was perfectly round and it was made entirely of wood. Sometimes it was covered with animal skins. The garin was a small shield first used by the Persians. The lacion was 
kind of oblong, oddly shaped like a square, but then stretched. Covered with animal skins, but this time when they covered the animal skins, they left the hair of the animal on it. There was the pelta, which was small. It was lightweight, and it was shaped like a half moon. It was an odd shape. I don't know how in the world that she'll protect me. It probably looked cute because they were known to have ornaments on them, but how in the world would protect anything, I do not know. But then there was what was called the thurias or the scutum. We know this is the one to which Paul referred because of the language of Scripture. It actually uses the word. So it lets us know this is the shield that Paul had in mind when he gives to us what we record as Ephesians chapter 6, verse 16. This shield was also made of wood. It was also covered with animal hide, very thick wood and covered with animal hide, but they would strip all the hair off the animal hide. This shield was larger than all the other shields that were used during their warfare. The word that is translated shield here originally meant door. And they used that word for a shield because these shields were so large. Many people said they looked like you were carrying a door around with you. The shields were the size, virtually the size, of the soldier themselves. It was made curved. So if I was standing behind a shield, it would kind of wrap itself around me like this, just in, in a bit of a curve. The shield also would cover the entire front of my body. And the scripture or history tells us these shields were heavy. This is what Paul talked about. These are the shields that were common in their day. But he also says that these shields would quench the fiery darts of the wicked. So again, I had to see what are these fiery darts? And I discovered that they were darts or arrows that were made out of cane. They would have a brass tip or a bronze tip on the end of them. The cane was either, or the, the, the cane in the tip was either dipped in some kind of accelerant or was wrapped in some kind of fabric and then soaked in an accelerant so that when these things were shot from a bow, they were so soaked with this accelerant that even as they would soar through the air, they would remain aflame. The desire was those things would hit your shield and burn it up, or they'd hit you and burn you up, or they'd hit your boat or your tent or whatever it might be, and the goal was simply to destroy you. That was generally the term that was used for fiery darts or flaming darts or flaming arrows. But many historians tell us there was another use for the same term, and it had nothing to do with fire or accelerant. That what they would do is take these same cane arrows, dip them in some kind of poison. So then when the enemy would shoot them at you, assuming that you did not have your shield or they missed it, when the arrow would hit you, it would burn like fire as the poison was taking the very life out of you. Hence they would call them flaming arrows. It is in all probability that both of these types of arrows were used during the days of the Apostle Paul. The darts were designed. These arrows were designed with just one thing in mind. The goal of the sending of the arrow was to destroy you or to take you out. Does not the scripture say that the thief comes to kill and to steal and to destroy? The goal of the enemy of our soul, the one that Paul calls here the wicked one, is to destroy your life and mind. It's designed to kill you. A couple observations that I began to make about these darts. Observations that we make about the darts that were sent in the natural. And these same observations are true about the darts that the enemy sends spiritually against your life and mine. Let me tell you a couple things about them. The darts came suddenly. Before you knew it, the attack had come. You were 
doing whatever you're doing. And all of a sudden, here comes in the darts. It suddenly came upon you. How many times do we walk our walk, this journey with Jesus Christ? And before we know it, out of the blue, it seems like the enemy has attacked us. He shot one of those handmade fiery darts at us. And when he shoots it, what difference does it make if it's flame or poison is designed to destroy us? But it comes suddenly. The arrows would come from unexpected quarters. Seldom does it come from the place where you would expect it to come. Often when the enemy targets us and shoots those darts at our lives, it comes from the last place we would have expected it. The betrayal of a good friend or the loss of a boss or whatever it might be. And all of a sudden that attack, that dart comes from places that are unguarded and they are unexpected. The third thing is they're designed to pierce and to penetrate. The arrows didn't come to tickle. They came to penetrate the targeted hand. When the enemy shoots his darts and his arrows at us, he does it with the intention of penetrating our lives and piercing our very soul that he might destroy us. The other thing is that they cause great pain, like being set on fire. The only way a soldier could protect himself from the arrows was with the shield. What would enable the shield to quench the fire? What would it possibly be? Would it be the metal? Would it be the skin of the animal? I discovered as I was reading, I knew there was something in here that I had not seen. I discovered as I was reading that the one thing that would quench the fire from the dart was the coating that was placed upon the shield. This scotum that he talked about, this shield that was used in that particular day, was made that the final layer, the layer that was exposed to the enemy, was animal skin. The hair was shaven off. There was a brass ring often placed around it. But what they would do with that skin is they'd put a layer of some sort of repellent on that skin that would make it deflect those things that came to it. The repellent they would use was oil. It was placed on there designed to extinguish as soon as the fiery dart came. The oil upon the skin of the shield was designed to extinguish the flame immediately. Now, what does that mean? I didn't realize it until I went back to the book of Isaiah. And I understand it's in 1 Samuel also. Isaiah chapter 21, verse 5. This is what the command was at the end of that verse. He says, ye princes, or, or arise ye princes, and anoint the shield. Place oil on the shield. The word anoint there, it talks about something that is being smeared on something else. It's a smearing, and it was generally the smearing of oil. It is the same word that was used for something set aside for divine purposes. It was the same thing that was used when somebody laid hands upon somebody and anointed them for the service of Almighty God. He said twice in Scripture, take the shield and anoint it with this oil. And when you do go into battle, none of those fiery darts are going to harm you. Glory to God. There's something about the oil of God, what it represents. There's something about the anointing of Almighty God. And he said, before you go into battle, make sure your shield is anointed. Glory to God. Paul said, take unto yourself the shield of faith. Folks, I call it the success of faith. Because the success of faith depends on the use of the shield. The shield that was designed to get the job done. Hear it again. Above everything else, take the shield of faith with which you will quench, there's a little word next, all the fiery darts of the enemy. There are no holes in the shield. 
There are no woggly parts in the shield that might be penetrated. He said, if you hit the shield, hold it up, and it can extinguish every fiery dart of the enemy. I want to share with you a couple of things about the shield. They were true about the physical shield, and they're true about the shield of faith. And I want you to be encouraged with this this morning. The shield, the scripture tells us, and history tells us, the shield was big. And it was big enough to cover everything. If I had a shield in front of me right now, it would be from my head almost to my feet. So no matter where you shot the arrow at me, I could take that, that shield and hold it in place, and it could not get me at all. The shield also was tailor-made. It was tailor-made to fit the soldier to whom the shield was given. I was sharing in the earlier service. I don't know if you guys have noticed, but Pastor Rick and I are not the same height. Can you imagine if he and I were in warfare? And I said to him, hey, let me borrow your shield. I'm stumbling and flipping over this thing. It's like way up here over my head, and it's just not working. Or if he didn't have his and he wanted to borrow mine, they'd take him out of his knees. The shield was designed to fit the soldier. Do you remember when David, they tried to give David the king's armor, Saul's armor, and he said, I don't want to use it. It wasn't designed to fit him. I need a shield that's designed to fit me. And let me tell you, the shield of faith that God gives to you is tailor-made for you. Glory to God. Tailor-made, a custom fit for you and for me. So when God raises up faith in my heart, it fits me and my own needs. This shield was not only the height of one's body, but it was curved around the sides. So if you hit me from the side, I'm still covered. Let me tell you this. I have heard almost all my Christian life, and I've heard it primarily from preachers, that God never gave us any armor for the back because he never intended us to run from the devil. Amen? That's partially true. The last part is definitely true. He never intended us to run from the devil. But what do you do if an attack comes from the back? Oh, man, the devil got me this time. The one portable piece of armor God has given is the shield. You put your arm in it and fasten it. It covers your whole front, your whole body. But if all of a sudden there's a sneak attack from the back, I just pivot and I got him. Glory to God. Every angle, every angle the enemy tries to get me. I'm covered by God. Folks, understand that God has got your fronts and God has got your back. Glory to God. And the faith of God over your life is tailor-made for you and tailor-made for me. Thirdly, the shield was portable. I just mentioned that, so let me go to number four. The shield was anointed. The thing, the thing upon the shield that would quench every weapon set against it was the oil placed upon it. There's nothing magic in the oil, nothing significant in the oil itself when it comes to what we call the anointing. It was smeared on there, but it represents not just the safety of the shield and the, the firmness of the shield. When we talk about the anointing upon us, there is an anointing of God upon our lives. We have been divinely favored and set aside by Almighty God. And if we don't know it, the enemy does. He knows those who belong to Jesus Christ. And he hates us and fights against us all the time. There is no reason for you and me to go against the enemy. Bear at all. God has given us helmets and swords. But he gave us a life-size shield. Glory to God. And he said it's a shield of faith. It's a shield that reminds you. That you can have perfect confidence and persuasion in who I am. Glory to God. 
I got your front. I got your back. Because you're mine. Glory to God. One last thing about the shield. I'm going to ask Pastor Rick to come. The shield is not only big, big enough to cover, cover us entirely. The shield is not only tailor-made that fits the soldier to whom it is given. The shield is not only portable and maneuverable so I can place it wherever I need to, wherever the enemy is coming from, I can turn that shield to deflect his attack. The shield is also anointed and covered with the one thing, with the one thing to extinguish the flames of the enemy. Let me make that real practical. Enemies coming, trying to punch your lights out. How do we survive? God, I have to go back to trust you. I have had times in my own walk. I was thinking about it yesterday. I remember an occasion when God had given me some instruction. I did exactly what he said to do. I was like, okay, God, I'm looking for the outcome that I kind of thought you'd have. And it didn't happen. And I literally, I was sitting on our bed at home. I curled up in a knot. And I just began to cry. And I said, God, all I have the strength to do today is to breathe. Please don't ask me to do anything else. You may never have been there. That was exactly what I said to God. And as I laid there curled up on the bed, all of a sudden, his word began to come to mind. And I knew that if I was going to make it out of that dark pocket, I had to depend on those things that I knew to be unalterably true. The name of my God. The promises of my God and the word of almighty God. I'm telling you, God's faithfulness to his word is not based on our moods or the nature of the attack. God is faithful because that's who he is. Glory to God. So when we talk about this shield, this shield that is there to defend us, guys, it's yours and it's mine. This shield is covered with exactly what it needs to have on it to destroy every fiery dart. And the enemy targets against you. But I'll tell you this lastly, the shield is worthless if we never pick it up. We can sing about faith. We can talk about faith. We can preach about faith. We can read about faith. But until we pick up the shield personally. And you don't need the shield, folks, until you're in warfare. And those are the very times when I just feel like, God, I don't want to fight another fight. I'm just weary. Pick it up. Pick it up. And all of a sudden, we see the glory of God. My hand is fixed behind the shield. And before the enemy can get to me, he's got to get through the anointed protection of Almighty God. Faith. Take unto yourself the shield of faith with which God can quench all the fiery darts of the enemy. Some years ago, a young lady named Vicki Winans wrote a song. The title of the song was Shake Yourself Loose. She talks in the song about those times when the enemy comes against you and deceives you and points the finger of accusation, tries to destroy you and tries to bind you up. She says that she asked this question in the song. She said, who told you that you can't make it? When God said you can take it, shake yourself loose. There are times, folks, when the enemy has almost convinced us. We'll never succeed. We'll never grow. We'll never stop that sin. We'll never be a conqueror. We'll never fulfill the call of God. Who told you that? It was not God. And when the enemy comes and tells us all manner of junk and tries to destroy us, shake yourself loose and hear what God has said. God says you are more than a conqueror through him that loves you. Glory to God. 
He said, this is the victory that overcomes the world. It is even our persuasive confidence in God. It is our faith. That's the word of God. That's the word of God for us. And it's in place because of this anointed shield. He said this, and this, with, with this I'm done. He said, in addition to all this, take it up. Don't look at the shield. Don't put it in the closet. Take it up. Take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the enemy. May I suggest to you and to myself this morning that it's time to do that. It's time to shake ourselves. If my faith has been challenged, shake it off, folks, and just get dressed in the garment. Glory to God. Pick up the shield. Have on the helmet. Have on the shoes. Have the sword of the Spirit. Have the belt of truth. But never forget your shield. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. It is the evidence of things not seen. I asked Pastor Rick if he'd play a song. I think he said it's from the 80s. It simply says, anointing, fall on me. Folks, we need the anointing of Almighty God. Amen? That covering of God that deflects those targets that the enemy brings, those things he brings against us. Let the power of the Holy Ghost fall on me. Lord, may your anointing fall on me. This morning, I want us to pray. And I want to invite you to join me at the altar, not just if you feel your faith has been under attack. All of us have felt that or feel that at some time or another. But I want us to come like going to a charging station. God, this morning, I just want to come. I want to pray. I want to seek your face. God, I want fresh oil on my shield this morning. God, I want to reinvigorate the faith that you put in my own heart and my own life. God, I come. God, I'm coming. I'm feeling weak. I'm feeling really strong. It doesn't matter. I'm just coming because, God, I need that fresh anointing of faith upon my own life because I want to stand as a man or woman after God's own heart, extinguishing every fiery dart of the adversary. Amen? That's our desire, is it not? And this morning, I'm going to ask you to stand with me very quickly. We're about to be finished. And I want to invite you to come. I want to invite you to come to the altar this morning. We're going to seek God for a while together. And it doesn't matter if you feel your faith is strong or it's weak. I just want to invite us to come, to take some time to worship God and to say, God, I'm coming to be recharged once again by this anointing of Almighty God. Pastor, would you lead us in the chorus? And as we sing it, just come around the altars if you would. Thank you, Jesus.